in this episode, health of upstream portfolio, how to create relationships, and more convergence than divergence. gas has always challenged technology. Now it's time for tech to challenge back. Come hear how the best minds in the industry are making those solutions a reality on the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast with your host, Mark LaCour. All right, so this is the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. Folks, before we get the guests for the show, please, 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 you want to support the show, do me a favor, leave me a review. It's the best thing you do to support this show and our eight, our, I'm sorry, seven other oil and gas podcasts. It takes three minutes on iTunes. It helps your peers find the cool shows like this one. And then, of course, we want to give a big shout out to Nutanix, the sponsor of this show. If you need help modernizing your data center and running applications at any scale, on-prem or in the cloud, these are the people you want to talk to. And I'm sitting here with Justin. Justin, I'll butcher your last name. Uh, Chichester. Chichester, awesome. Data Foundation Supervisor with a little company I think we've heard of, ExxonMobil. And uh, Dr. David Gold, Chief Meteorologist at IBM Services. How y'all doing today? Excellent. <laughs> real well. In front of all these people, everything got real quiet. <laughs> yeah. And so we're sitting here, we just went through a whole bunch of really cool presentations at this IBM event. Did my 2020 predictions, and we had a tech challenge, which kind of rattled me a little bit. So hopefully the, the predictions were valuable to the audience. But I want to kind of get a big picture. You know, in the oil and gas industry, we've always been a big data industry. Back to when it's paper mud logs. The problem is that data was siloed. It wasn't used for anything. You fast forward to 2019, the industry as a whole realizing that it has to use the data to drive efficiencies. What are the challenges? Boy, opening up with the big the big guns <laughs> questions. So assuming you direct that as me and Mark, we can take it next. The I'd say the largest challenge is, just as you alluded to, is we have really optimized within our specific functions and specific silos. So if you're a maintenance person, you have really optimized in the maintenance domain. Or if you're an inventory management domain, you've optimized there. Or process safety or kind of take your list all the way through the subsurface, all the way into the subsurface or surface and into logistics. That optimization has been, has served the oil and gas industry well for many years, especially when this, the boom and bust cycles came through, we were able to respond into the respective silos. As we've made the turn, and I would say the last decade or into the new advanced digital techniques, those silos are actively working against us, basically. A lot of the insights we wish to drive from our data entitlement or data assets are inherently cross-system. They're inherently picking up on signals that exist in many different systems across many different pieces of our value chain. So we're trying to say to ourselves, how do we stitch and create insight across these systems and across these domains to really take us from where we've been in the past to the future of the next tier? Yeah, do you have some insight on that? Some opinion? Yeah, I agree that that is definitely a, an issue. We also, from my perspective, an explosion in the diversity and the size of the data sets and the inefficiency with which analytics can be applied to that data. Now we're seeing that paradigm change with, you know, the analytics and data coming closer together, which is a kind of a, a linchpin of the IBM hybrid multi-cloud strategy. But in geophysical sciences, including meteorology, we've seen and we continue to see a massive increase in the amount of data, the diversity and generally the lack of standards. Even though we do have an organization that tries to impose standards, the World Meteorological Organization, 
it's still very difficult to get you know to get you know, enough uniformity so data scientists are having to work really hard to you know align all those data sets and extract the value from them so so just the size of the of the problem yeah it's incredible audience by the way people in the back room can y'all hear us okay Okay, good, because I don't have much more volume. I can pump out with this thing, do it a little bit. So, Justin, I want to kind of roll back to you. So, you're involved in the Upstream Integrated Solutions Organization, ExxonMobil. When that announcement was made, I go, in my head, I go, oh, my God, <laughs> this is incredible. So, what are y'all doing? What is y'all's mission? Yeah, so it's probably worth just stepping back. In April 1, we announced a reorg for the, the ExxonMobil Upstream into three kind of Entities. First one is the oil and gas company, which really focuses on end-to-end value chain delivery against a specific business, deep water, unconventional, LNG, conventional, and heavy oil. So five different value chains. In addition to that, we formed the upstream business development company, which is really focused on our portfolio, whether that portfolio is hydrocarbons or oil and gas in the ground or potential acquisitions, divestments, whatever that might be. They look after the, the overall health of the ExxonMobil upstream portfolio. And then upstream integrated solutions, which we're, which I'm a part of, is really this technical center of expertise, which provides integrated technical solutions across subsurface, surface, research and development, commercial and trading, and digital transformation, and wells. But really, how do you turn technology and trends we see in the market into value for ExxonMobil and our partners and our shareholders? Yeah. That's a mouthful, but it's yeah. it's really incredible to see our industry looking forward, you know, reaching out to our peers in Silicon Valley, you know, not trying to reinvent the wheel and, and trying to improve our businesses. So my next question is, you know, when you look at what's going on with the Upstream Digital Data Foundation, what was the inspiration for that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So when we set out on our kind of initial wave of digital transformation, we did a lot of work looking externally, some of the Silicon Valley peers, we brought a lot of a lot of different companies in that previously we hadn't talked to. Think Google, Amazon. That was not a footprint for ExxonMobil before we started looking at what are some of these really powerful technology trends that we see are shaping other industries and creating a tremendous amount of disruption. And what does it mean for the oil and gas energy industry? Maybe less prone to disruption, but maybe that's not the greatest thing because our time cycles, our investment cycles are so long. So as we canvass both our looked externally and we canvassed internally our organization, we came to this common root set of problems. And if you're an engineer in the audience or you work for a major, you know it. Data, I can't find it. When I find it, I can't trust it. It takes me a long time to get it prepped for doing an analysis. It's a rate limiting step, if you will. I'm a chemical engineer, so (laughs) some of that jargon's gonna get in here. So we took a step back and we said, okay, we need to take an active and concentrated look on How do we begin making, honestly, it's a little bit of a user experience driven thing for our scientists, engineers, operators out at the different BUs. How do we make the experience with data uplifted and how do we increase the pace at which they can experiment, the pace at which we can run advanced analytics and the pace at which we can deploy and scale? Initially, it'll be analytics, but evolve into machine learning, artificial intelligence techniques, deep learning as we go along this journey. So the data foundation initiative was born. Yeah. So David, I want to ask you from IBM's point of view, you know, one of the problems and, you know, things like big data analytics sounds really cool until you're the three man team that spends four days combing through Excel spreadsheets to clean up that data. So you can feed it to the machine that spits out the answer in three seconds. Right. But the work was cleaning up that data from IBM's point of view. How do y'all look at that problem? Because that is a big problem in our industry. 
Yeah. And, you know, the platform play is a key part of that. The idea that you have to constantly go back and reinvent the wheel. You notice in an industry, I mean, oil and gas, certainly, that there's a, a certain subset of problems and applications that keeps coming up over and over again. Yes, each one is different. Each client, is their needs are different, but those use cases come up, you know, supply chain optimization, worker safety. One way to tackle that and, and something that I think IBM has embraced is to essentially uh, create these sort of pre-baked solutions. For example, we have something called Pairs. I'm going to stick closer to something I know well, which is a big data platform for geophysical data sets. Think about all the satellite data that's out there, right? Think about the problem of methane leak detection, right? So if you're operating an integrated oil company, you've got a lot of oil fields, you certainly like to keep tabs on where the leaks are coming from. You can leverage IoT and satellite data, but that's a lot of data. How do you, you know, do you have to, each time you have a client that has this problem, do you have to start all over again, going and finding these huge raster data sets, integrating all of their different sensors? We've brought all that together into a platform called Pairs. Now, obviously not proprietary IoT data, but it's pretty easy to add custom data sets to this huge repository of satellite data, weather data, all kinds of data sets, both vector and raster. And because the analytics can be applied directly to the data and the, the resources can be scaled up as the size of the problem and the amount of data increases, that's an example of, of something that IBM's done that I think works really well for minimizing the amount of spin-up time and data prep, especially on these large geophysical and geospatial data sets. Yeah, so Justin, that's, you, we could have timed this better. So you're basically talking about a standardized data platform that you can use and adopt to whatever customer you're using. So, Justin, I want to come back to you from, from Exxon's point of view. You know, how does that type of data platform help what you're doing in your company? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, as we look internally, one of the things we have to face, and, when, and I think probably most oil majors are, are sitting in a similar boat, which is we're built on a series of legacy systems that have been staggered in timing of install. So, I have all the way from way over end of life to something approaching a more modern architecture. And then we got a whole subset of folks that claim we have a modern architecture and it still can't talk through services, which is its own problem. Yeah, not our so, industry, not old, not legacy software. We have none of that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So the challenge becomes really interesting. So there's the, how do I get the prepackaged and how do I take these data platforms that can accelerate our journey to achieve the value objectives we need, but also how can I mine our legacy and actually uplift what we have today to also feed some of that stuff. So there is an element of how do we pick up a platform or how do we build in a, a series of platforms or orchestrate a series of platforms to tackle business problems. And we can talk more on that in a bit, but also how do we interoperate and integrate in this legacy, which is as unique as my fingerprint. Only ExxonMobil has and only one of our competitors has the exact fingerprint that we might have. So you're trying to break that apart into reusable patterns, as David mentioned. But to an extent, there's some things that we have to do ourselves to stitch things together for ExxonMobil. Yeah, it, I'm sure the whole audience knows this. But when I first entered this industry 25 years ago, and I got to see behind the curtain of Chevron, and it's like, how do y'all make money? I mean, literally... 
the technology they were using was a mix of stuff from like the 70s, old green screen stuff to modern stuff. But between the different business units, there was no continuity. Right. So this unit was here on the, the maturity curve. This unit was here. And it's just it's as an industry, it's going to be pretty cool if we get to the point where they, we can at least talk to each other internally, you know, and bring try to standardize stuff. So, Justin, I want to come back to you again. So can you talk a little bit about the technologies you're using to develop this sort of solutions internally at ExxonMobil? Sure. And I'll just say we're trying to be as pragmatic as possible when we talk about what kinds of technologies we pick up, because to us, it's all about how quickly can we convert on a business problem or a potential market opportunity? And how quickly can we see that fall to the bottom line, whatever it might be? Now, in certain domains, that's a longer arc. In some domains, you could test relatively quickly, although nowhere near approaching what you see the digital natives do. So when we look at our technology stack, we see a lot of stuff that people hear every day. We're looking into doing better streaming using supported open source Kafka or some other streaming technique to uplift the way data can be subscribed to in our organization. We have events that happen, a maintenance event, a trading event. Those are all events. It's well suited to that. We're using the cloud right now where we've announced in the Permian a large partnership with Microsoft, but we're looking at how can the cloud technology, the auto scaling, those things uplift and increase our velocity. We have a polyglot series of databases. So use the right data store for the problem you're trying to tackle. You're not going to store a global repository of raster images the same way I'm going to store my maintenance records. And it's kind of silly to think you just use one for it. So we have a series of those. And then what we're using to try to stitch it all together is a knowledge graph. And we're using a property graph in this instance. And if, you, if you're familiar, there's RDF or property graphs. They work for the problem you're trying to solve. But at the end of the day, we value very much how is information related and how is it stitched together? And how can we use those relationships and that, that stitching or that web or ontology to actually answer questions we've never been able to answer before? And unlock value we've never been able to unlock before. Yeah, that's cool. It's not that we're following a script or anything, but you know, you mentioned a knowledge graph. <laughs> what is a knowledge graph? I almost left it out just to test. <laughs> you know? I wrote down some definitions, right? Because I every time I define it, it's like a twenty-minute speech. So I'm just going to go to the experts, and uh, I like this one, the Semantic Web Company, which set out to said, "Look, our information in the world is connected. So how do we put things in place to really connect up this information?" So at the simplest example, when you search for a person or some common thing on Google and you get that box over to the right, like what's Benjamin Franklin? Well, what? who was Benjamin Franklin? Not what's he up to. We all know that. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> That's powered by their knowledge graph. But I like the definition. It can be envisioned as a network of all kinds of things which are relevant to a specific domain or an organization, ExxonMobil. They're not limited to abstract concepts and relations, but can also contain instances and things like documents and data sets. And you think about our data entitlement, it's diverse as you could possibly imagine. All the way from Excel streets, spreadsheets, Word documents, massive databases, seismic repositories. And what we're trying to do is figure out how do we stitch this information together to drive value. Yeah, that structured versus unstructured data thing is a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's the difference between a knowledge graph and just a plain old-fashioned database? Another hard question. So I try not to get too technical for the, the broader the audience. Show, oh, this though. is the tech yeah. Okay. If you were solving a problem 15 years ago, you'd open up a SQL Server, you'd call SAP or, one, or IBM or Oracle, and nine times out of 10, you'd spin up what's called a relational database system. 
there's tables, this table's related to that table through a primary key, super well, very memory efficient, works very well to solve problems, many applications are built on it. It's a good, good way to do things. But it's got some inherent limitations at scale. So when you really open up into a very complex domain that's got a lot of information in it, and a lot of different relationships, and those relationships can maybe not always be deterministic, sometimes they're probabilistic, it begins to have some challenges. So what we see in the in the data space is a number of different kinds of techniques coming up. And this is not new news. This has been around for 10, 15, 20 years if you're on the bleeding edge. Columnar stores, document-oriented management systems. In addition to these kind of NoSQL or non-relational databases are a graph database, which looks at how do I create relationships that exist not in a taxonomy, but more of an ontology, more of a web? And then you can start to run some really interesting kind of algorithms, which look at things like shortest path link to an answer. Are these elements connected? You can play six degrees of Kevin Bacon with your data. You can do all those kinds of things very fast. And it's really not about that being the only tool. It's about how do you stitch a lot of different things together to answer your business problem, but also be able to evolve and scale as you find new problems, you want to ask new questions of your data. Yeah, so David, I'm taking a, a wild shot here. On the science of meteorology on the IBM side, this has to be the same problem you all had to, you had to deal with too. Well, meteorology as a field has, not just meteorology, all of our sciences have embraced data models that are suitable for the data sets that are common in meteorology. You won't find many meteorological data sets in a relational database because the structure of the data just doesn't lend itself to that. You'll often find the data stored in a way where there's metadata. So you have data, kind of descriptive data that talks about the various aspects of your data. For example, for weather data set coming directly out of one of the numerical weather prediction models, which most, for example, natural gas or power traders know by heart, they even know what times these things run. Those data come out stored in a way that tells you, okay, what's the latitude longitude span of the data set that I have here? What's the time frame? You know, what's the hourly frequency, which a new forecast is available within this data file? It's a very different data model for meteorological data sets, and it's, but it's very important to have a data model that makes sense for the type of data that you're using. Yeah. So, uh, Justin, Justin, <laughs> I want to roll back to you real quick. So, in the Upstream Digital Data Foundation, and then, oh, thank you very much. Somebody just brought us water, audience, not audience here, because y'all can see it, audience around the world, which, by the way, we're 700,000 listeners from 172 different countries. So, this week, a few more people than what's here listening to us, but we love our live audiences. Anyway, Justin, come back to you. With a lot of the work that you're doing, I know you face like some enormous challenges. What's like the top two or three challenges you face that maybe our audience can learn a lesson from or can at least know what to expect? Whew. Okay. Well, I think we alluded to the first one, which is the inherent disconnectedness of our base information. So if you just take your data footprint today, which we think we can drive value from as is, it's not well connected. It requires a ton of domain knowledge to actually stitch it together. And a lot of our scientists and engineers are working kind of our next generation assets or on capital projects. But there's a lot of information that needs to exist that needs to be pulled out so we can create the connections that exist in people's brains in the computer. So that inherent disconnectedness is a key challenge that we're trying to face. The other one is 
And it's less of a technical question. It's more of a how you do business question. It's how do you make sure that you're not doing data for data's sake? You're not doing technology for technology's sake. There is a lot of cool stuff out there, a lot. And it's all really interesting. And it's very easy to fall into the trap where you think you have an opportunity that will drive value and it's got some solutions, kind of like technology looking for a problem, so to speak. And it doesn't quite cross the finish line. It actually didn't cross off the user's most important need or it didn't actually drop to the bottom line in some way, shape or form. And it's, it's really stretching through the workflows, through the way we do business and figuring out how do you leverage some of these important technology trends. Data is one of many to actually go all the way through, through our engineers, scientists, value chains to some endpoint, whether it's a uplifted recommendation, a new trade, it could be anything that kind of creates value for our partners and shareholders and stretch it all the way out. So you're solving the problem and you're closing the last mile. There's too many initiatives and projects and small things that aren't architected in a way that close that last mile, get to the final end user, get to the customer, get to the engineer, get to that final business objective. And orientation around that value orientation is one of the biggest advantages I think ExxonMobil can bring to the table, as well as kind of a core piece of the challenge for any large organization. Yeah, it's funny how culture always ends up coming to play in, in no matter what. And it's yeah. funny you bring that up. I've actually had oil and gas companies come to us and go, we want a podcast. And I'll go, okay, what problem are you trying to solve? They go, we don't know. We just want a podcast. It's the same, the same thing you're talking about. It's like, it's not, technology is not always the solution, bringing a technology tool. Sometimes paper is the right solution, right? But you want to solve that business problem first, regardless of what the tool is and the process that you get there. It, for the audience, I have two pieces of printed paper. And Mark, <laughs> Mark is on his laptop. And, and David's winging it with a drink in his hand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very low tech. So, David, from your end, from IBM's end, you know, y'all run into challenges all the time. And that's what you're there for, to help your clients solve those challenges. What's one of the couple of big things that you see from your side on the other side of the table? Well, from the weather perspective, it's often just, you know, convincing them that there's a problem that weather can solve. Right. Part of that's culture. Part of that's over dependence on technology. For example, I've heard some stakeholders tell me, well, I, I just use my app to get the weather forecasts and I can. Uh, that's fine. That's good enough. Well, but what if you have thousands of different sites to monitor for hundreds of thousands of different sensor readings and different, you know, people moving around different places? It's too complex a problem to monitor the, to check the weather forecast on your app for all of those. And even if you could, how would you integrate that? The in, How would you take advantage of that data stream to derive insights from it? After all, it, just as with anything, any data, it's not so much about the data. It's about the insights that you're trying to derive from it. So trying to, you know, that's where the model of doing these, what we call quick wins or POCs is really important. These proofs of concept, because we can quickly show them that, you know, when you add weather into the equation, you really do drive additional meaningful value. Yeah. All right. David so, made me think of the third challenge. Go ahead. So, so we talk about POCs that kind of, is this a problem worth solving? Like, how do you figure out which problems to solve? That's a really important question to answer for any organization, because you probably have more opportunities than you have bandwidth to go tackle. That's usually a kind of a universal truth, in my opinion. 
once you get through the POCs and you start working at, okay, these are the types of things we need to go tackle and convert to value, converting those into kind of product, scaled product in an organization that has inherent complexity or has the global breadth of an integrated oil major is the third thing I would say that is a, a very large challenge because you run into things like in Papua New Guinea, the internet's very not very good. So all of a sudden my cloud solution that works great for kind of our more connected assets no longer works in Papua New Guinea in the way you think it is. So it's a whole new area of technical challenges that need to be overcome as you start to implement those solutions. So converting to scale and converting on execution would be the, I'd say it's my third big challenge in this space. Yeah, there's always a big difference between what worked in the lab or worked in the office <laughs> yeah. and what role you roll out in the field. Right. All right, I got three questions I'll ask y'all to both answer. It's kind of a quick way to just get some information out there. So I'm going to start with you first, uh, Justin. What's the best, most exciting thing you've learned so far through the initiatives y'all have done recently? I'm going to answer that two ways. Number one is really taking a crack at how do we design our business to take advantage of these digital trends and how do we actually convert that into what does ExxonMobil do, especially the upstream, and how do we turn that into value? That Actually learning how to do that is not something that comes out of the box. You got to practice it. You got to start working at it. You got to figure it out. So that's been really exciting. The other one is, and if you're kind of a technology person, you know this well, being able to experiment and play with new technologies and new techniques to that turn classically hard problems into easy problems is exciting. It's, it's extremely exciting because two years ago, I couldn't solve this problem. Today we can. And that's a cool paradigm to exist. And as hard as the pace of technology turnover is today and as fast as it is, being able to solve things we literally couldn't even make a swing at a few years ago is truly interesting. Yeah. So David, what's the most exciting you've learned so far recently? I think the most exciting thing is seeing the response of the business community to a study that we commissioned with the Institute for Business Value and how positive the feedback was regarding the, the value and importance of weather to the operations of these various vertical sectors, industries. You know, some people might say, well, that's kind of silly. Um, it's pretty obvious that you know weather impacts business. In fact, that's why the IBM bought the weather company. But seeing executives actually get quantitative about their viewpoints and putting that, you know, committing that to paper was really, really exciting to see. I'll also say that every day that I see the uplift of what we do in helping a client and delivering that extra value. That's every day, I would say, where we deliver successfully and help achieve a better business outcome for client. That's very exciting. So it's not just one th one moment. I get to relive it over and over again. Yeah, it feels good when a client shakes your hand and goes, thank you. Yeah. 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 All right. Next question. Justin, what do you see the future bringing? Not future, like every future, future in, in the topic of this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is it very broad? I, I saw the look on your you, face. When You're, you figure it out, let me know. Start talking quantum mechanics. Yeah. I think what we see is as we start turning the corner in our digital maturity, we start looking at more convergence than divergence. So if you look at our kind of portfolio of initiatives, we have a lot of really great work going on in a number of different value chains all over the world. And over the next couple of years, what we're looking into is how do we stitch all these together so that decisions or information made you know, upstream Permian might help a, a trader in Singapore. That's a little bit of a stretch, but no, it's not, not really. unconceivable. Yeah. So it's really for us about how do we create value out of this information that really stretches across kind of things or value change or disciplines or domains that 
previously were completely unconnected. And, and that's really what we're trying to go do. What's your answer? Well, you would think as a meteorologist that I have a crystal ball, but I'm really <laughs> bad at these types of questions. <laughs> so with regards to, I don't want to speak about industry trends at large. That's your no, just, domain. Just but, the future in, in the little, the, your sandbox that you play in. Yeah. In the sandbox I play in, even there, it's, it's pretty tough to, to answer because technology is moving so quickly. I'd like to say we're going to get a lot faster at delivering not just the weather forecast, but directly delivering the customized insights that matter to each business. I think we're going to get crisper at that exercise. And I think we're going to be, you know, a lot better at, at tailoring insights and not just from weather, but we'll, we'll get seamless at the process of driving decisions from a combination of weather and other data sets that are very much tailored for business. That's, that's what I think is going to come. And so my final question, and I have my opinion on this, and I may or may not talk about it, depending on y'all's answer, whether it makes me look stupid or not. <laughs> but for both y'all, you know, this industry, I think, is the most important industry on the planet to mankind. I love my industry. It's been in for 25 years. But we're always not even kind of close to the bleeding edge, right? And, and there's reasons for that. So, Justin, I'm going to ask you, why do you think our industry, the oil and gas industry, lags behind when it comes from technology and technology adaptation? So Mark and I talked about this beforehand. I'm sure this will get cut from the podcast, so I feel I can just talk to <laughs> talk to the audience about it. You see, and we kind of said, I, you know, I think it's culture, right? And I said, Mark, I'm not sure. So I'm going to offer a dissenting opinion or, or maybe yeah, a, a different flavor. Yet. Okay. Oh, <laughs> see, they, you and oh, I had the conversation. Oh, okay. You and I and them didn't have the oh, conversation. Y'all can see if you agree with me or not. So. When you look at, I'm going to focus on upstream for now, but it, some of this is true in our downstream and chemical industries. And you look at our investment cycles and the pace at which we gather feedback, we're talking decades. My last job was on the Hebron platform, which is producing first oil off Newfoundland, Canada as of 2017. We made that final investment decision in 2012, and it was a prospect in active development since basically 2010. So that's about a seven-year turnaround time, that'll hit peak oil. So some of the key technology we put in it won't be tested until 2022. Actually, the reservoir is doing a little better, so maybe a little earlier, but we'll see. So you think about that and you think about Amazon or Facebook or IBM or any of these firms that are on the bleeding edge, retail, media, their feedback loop is days, minutes, sometimes seconds. So the pace at which they can think about these things and turn around things and try new ideas and not put people at risk and is on a completely different timescale than I have to make a large billion dollar investment based on uncertain information of what's in the ground. And that thing has got to be good for a decade, maybe even more. And you think about the differences in timescales of that feedback loop. And I think to me, that's a big fundamental driver of what has limited the pace at which we can pick up some of these technology trends because we many times we simply operate on a different time horizon than what we talk about now we're trying to pull this digital space forward so we can operate on a much faster feedback loop in our enterprise while still preserving the discipline and rigor and kind of long-term view that exxon mobile is known for in terms of how do we make large-scale capital decisions in a smart leading leading edge type of way so that's that yeah, makes a lot of sense. You guys, if, tell me if you think if the audience right. doesn't know, a lot of times, especially a deep water well, from first oil to decommission, maybe fifty or sixty years, right? So this isn't something that's turned around in a weekend or a month or whatever. And a single deep water well could be billions of dollars investment when it's all said and done. So back to you, David. Why do you think this industry is slow to adopt technology? 
I'm going to go with the safe answer and just <laughs> say, you know, ingrained habits, culture. You know, you've got the people that are actually running the show in the field are, you know, very veteran operators that have a certain way of doing things. And, you know, they didn't get to have such a long career by, you know, making a lot of mistakes. And so I, th I think it's just human nature to be slow to adopt change, even when you can clearly see the benefits. I would, again, going back to weather, we've been slow in our own way. We've made rapid advances in predictability, but we're also siloed. We haven't done a great job at breaking down the walls that separate academia, public sector, like the National Weather Service and private sector. And, and we, we just need to do a better job at doing that so that we can more quickly spin up innovation and learn how to communicate this to stakeholders so they can use the information more effectively. I appreciate both. I think both of y'all are right. I need a volunteer. Do we have any questions out there? And if we do, I need a volunteer to bring the microphone to them. Well, while nobody wants to raise their hand first, I'll tell you my opinion on why I think we're slow. And I think we're a risk-adverse industry, right? We're one of the few industries where if you make a mistake, people die. And not only do people die, but you can have an environmental catastrophe, which can destroy your company overnight. So in our industry, if you have a process or a technology in place and nothing blows up and nothing leaks, nobody wants to change the process. So the cool thing about this new younger workforce that's coming in, they're going, we can still be safe and try new things. My generation was the one that's like, no, everything goes in Microsoft Excel, right? And I'm so glad to see that go away. So do we have a question? Oh, let me turn you up. Go ahead. It's actually a comment related to this question that you're talking about, which is, I think is there's no need. You don't need to go as fast as some other industries to be successful. If there was a need, I'm sure there would, you know, something would be happening to, you know, make the technology, uh, you know, go faster. So I think it's just as simple as that. There's no need. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. The other thing is from a financial point of view, okay, I can invest and take my money and invest in, in new technology or I can go drill another well. Which one's going to make me the biggest return on my capital? Good. I'm, I'm just, I think you're right. I think in the past that need perhaps hasn't been as clear. But when we take a step back and we start looking at who is making in our benchmark portfolio, who's making kind of incremental profit per barrel of oil, per whatever commodity you're trading, we're beginning to see the folks who have really thought through some of these digital trends and how they apply to the value chain and how they apply to the business they're in. And the folks that are solving it are beginning to pull away. And it, it's still early days in that kind of race, but there, there are examples of firms that are are beginning to kind of shape that need to where I think we're going to see more adoption and we're going to see more. How do you create value from this? How do you pick up these trends over time? Because I really don't believe we can, we have to marry the industries. Basically we are a technology industry. We are an innovative industry and we got to figure out how to leverage some of these other pieces of innovation to apply productively to our business. Yep, and I think folks are starting to, demonstrate that. Yep. And I think the companies that do that first will pull ahead. The companies don't do it will be left behind. Another question from the audience. Yes. I'm actually going to sort of dissent with the observation that you made, as in there is no need, because I strongly believe that innovation happens because you look left and right to other industries and see what are they doing? What are some of the techniques that could be applied here? Innovation happens at the intersection. So under that, with that caveat, what would be some industries you would look to, Justin, from you know an oil and gas perspective? You know, I know you're looking at other companies for sure, but do you look further? Or if you were to look further, what would be like the second or third industry that you would be interested in? 
Okay, that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me give it a shot. Let me give it a shot. So, so the first thing, this is not the party line. So my PNJ person might might wave at me. But one of the things I find very interesting about oil and gas is a lot of our work in value driver comes way upstream of the facility being built. So you think about our value chains and our timeline. We're talking. I think there might be oil or gas in the ground or some resource in the ground all the way chasing through subsurface characterization into detailed design. You get it built through engineering cycles and then it turns on and that is can be decades. And that's all in the thought work, right? Your data entitlement or your actual reality of information is kind of low. So you have teams of engineers and scientists and geoscientists trying to create meaning out of a relatively limited information set based on standards, benchmarks, all those types of things. Fundamentally, though, it goes to the workflows that exist to say, here's how I do subsurface characterization, here's how I do engineering design, all of those things. What they're doing is turning knowledge work, engineering and analytics, all that kind of stuff, into kind of something that persists in a production environment. Well, you know who else has really conquered that problem? The software industry. You start looking at some of the DevOps revolution, how they say, hey, all this automation, we're going to put all this automation in testing and the back end. I'm going to turn my code into production that is basically committing some brilliant programmers or developers or data scientists mental thought into something that persists in a production environment. And we're going to automate the dickens out of all the stuff that makes it hard to do that. So I think there's a parallel there. I think that is an interesting thing, and I don't think it's a leaf that's really been turned over by oil and gas or any of the other engineering-heavy industries, whatever that might be. So that's one. It's a little bit kind of kind of nerdy, and I'm on the fringe, but I I think there's a really I think there's a really tight parallel to the, there. And you know, if you were talking to me at work, you you know that I say this. You know, you want to test in your production-like environment. Well, why can't I do that with a piece of an engineering design? I mean, there's no technical reason why not. It's a little more complicated, kind of stitches together. So so that's one. I think that's an interesting one. We'll see how it shapes up over the years. The other one is the banking trading industry. And specifically, we, we have a matching domain, right? We have our logistics supply chains, our commercial and trading industries, how we do all that that work. I think you have a parallel industry right across the street who has been looking at these problems, how to deal with complex regulations, how to deal with a global footprint. And they've been up the adoption curve when you compare to many of the integrated majors. So I I see that's another area we might look at. Yeah. So we got time for one more question. So you guys have talked about how there's so much diversity in data and there's diversity in the quality of data and the variation of it. But, and you also talked about how the integration of the data is very, very powerful, right? But what about the integration of all the skill sets and integration of all the people and the efforts that they put in to basically drive towards that first oil? Like what I'm seeing is, you know, just say like trying to land your wells. You know, you have G&G getting involved, but more and more you're seeing petrophysics and all these other domains get involved in that activity. But I'm hearing that it's hard and it's not happening enough. So how do you drive that more? That's me. I guess that's me. That is for sure. All right. Maybe I'll see if I can. So number one, one thing we can do is embrace open standards as much as possible, especially in areas that aren't considered proprietary advantages. So some of the industry data standards and really what that is, that's like grease in the skids of working together. 
you know, when your data model is the same, you just remove friction from the organization. So that's a little bit of a technology thing, but it's something that we're very supportive of at ExxonMobil is how we do that. Number two, and this is really where you start forming teams around workflows that are inherently multidisciplinary. So if you, un if you were to unpack some of these multidisciplinary workflows, maybe today, You'd see one coordinator running an Excel sheet, tracking the list of tasks, right? I got to go ask the petrophysicist for this. I got to go ask this person for this. And it's just a high friction system. So you can easily start thinking about software, apps, technology, however you want to orchestrate it, that is focused on how do I get folks to work together in a particular workflow or a particular outcome that facilitates collaboration rather than inhibits collaboration. So that's a bit of a, of a technology component there. And then the last thing is I'm a believer that great results come from highly integrated teams that have figured out ways to work together. So a lot of it has to do with kind of team design, inherent team design and inherent diversity of people and thought and approach when trying to tackle a business problem or an objective, whatever that objective may be. I'm staying kind of generic because it's hard to pin it down. But if you can get, you know, a geophysicist thinks things about things a little differently from a driller. So how can technology enable those two to see each other's viewpoints, whether it's I'm doing this kind of analysis or that kind of analysis or an electrical engineer and an instrumentation engineer, how can they see each other's viewpoints and how it persists in their mind and use data technology and information as a lubricant for those desired interactions. Darn good question. All right, we got to pay the bills. So real quick, this is part of the show where we do a product review. I don't have any products review here, which is good because I want to go get a drink. But if you want to submit a product review, do it. I will always tell the truth. If it's great, I'll say it's great. If it's not so great, I'll say that as well. But please, people, this is little gadgety things. I really can't review your air compressors, your fire compression systems. You know, it's little things you bring to work that's cool. Uh, next thing, street team. Do I have any street team members out here? Nobody wants to raise their hand if it is. Anyway, so we have a global organization of volunteers that help with this podcast and our other seven oil and gas podcasts. If you want to join, go to Facebook, look up OGG and Street Team. We ask you for an hour's worth of work a week. And if you can't do it, we don't care. We know life gets in the way. And you're really just helping us with the social media. And then a big shout out to BCD Travel. They're our travel provider of choice. They make our oil and gas traveling life easier. So if you need to get your parts, pieces, and people around the world and know that they're safe and know you can get them back, go check out BCD Travel. And the Nutanix is doing something really cool. Sponsors show. You know, they enable IT, IT teams to build and operate highly automated private and hybrid clouds. But they do more than that. They're giving away this really cool Bluetooth speaker, JBL Flip 4. So this is the first time I've gotten the URL. So if you want to go win it, it's really easy. You go to Nutanix.com forward slash OG Tech Podcast or just go to the show notes and click on the link. We give away one a week and it's a really cool giveaway. And then while you're online, go ahead and give us your email address. Go to the website, OnGasTechPodcast.com. We promise not to spam you. We just use that to alert you to some of the cool stuff we're doing like this. And then go ahead and join the LinkedIn group. My marketing team has just blown that thing up. When I was running it myself, we had like 170 members. Now we're, I think we're at 16,000 members. So go join the LinkedIn OGG and Street team. All right. Big shout out to, big round of applause to my guest today. I think y'all did really well. And so, Justin, if people want to learn more about ExxonMobil, where should they go? <laughs> so we're present on all the major social media feeds, Twitter, Facebook, take, take your pick. And then you can hit us at the website, www.exxonmobile.com for anything you might want to know. Yeah. And David, if people want to learn more about IBM, where should they go? 
ibm.com and for services ibm.com slash services so how about linkedin we'll put a link to your linkedin linkedin's fine yeah all right so those links will be in the show notes you listen to that either scroll up or left depending if you're android or ios you can just click on all the links i want to thank my live audience sitting here y'all did a great job thanks for some really good questions yeah so we need to get out of here so mark can get a drink so we are making sure that you don't get left behind one episode at a time and here are the events on deck hey everyone alex here with the events on deck for november First of all, we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in Houston with our panel discussion. So thanks to everyone who attended, and we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future. Be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oilfield Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oil Field of Dreams, Data, Digitization, and Disruption. This event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring Day 2 of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day two has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors, as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum, which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Top Coder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the YPRO and Top Coder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. Alnaft will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's Monthly Events email link in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil and Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. <laughs>